Good afternoon, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. Today, Lord, we come as uh, as beggars just asking you to open our eyes. Lord, to reveal your truth to us again. Father, as we come again to your word, we pray that you might give us another glimpse of your infinite character, your grace. And give us humility as well, Lord, to submit to your voice as we read your word. Amen. It's my pleasure uh, this morning to introduce the book of John as uh, is our practice here at Gospel of Grace Church. Uh, in an endeavor to hear God's voice as clearly as possible, we teach verse by verse, Sunday by Sunday, through entire books of the Bible. We've just concluded the book of Isaiah, and uh, today we begin the book of John. And we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and we start a new year. Um, uh, I'm excited to be reading this book together with you as a church. The book of John is familiar to anyone who has been in church life for any extended time. But you know, familiarity with a book can be a blessing and also a stumbling block. Do you know when we evangelize, when we share the gospel with unbelievers, it is often the first book of the Bible that we point people to, to read. Perhaps that was your experience when you were a new Christian. It's, uh, it's the book we use as a church. We keep them around and we give them to people who visit us as, as, uh, as guests at our church and when we share the gospel with the people around us in our workplace with our neighbors. So it's often the first book of the Bible you read, so it becomes very familiar. Um, John 3.16 is the most widely known and memorized verse in the Bible. And I'm pretty sure that most of you would be able to recite it from heart. Uh, that's just an example. It's the very first verse we learn. So John becomes very familiar. You know, I was talking to Max the other day. And Max told me that he'd been in church for over 50 years. And that he had heard so many sermons that he can almost finish Harley's sentences for them when he preaches. And I know what he means, and so do many of you. But there is a danger in this, and a potential stumbling block. Although the words of John have not changed since you read it last, our definitions of those words are different and more precise. This is the process of progressive, ongoing sanctification promised to believers by God. That is the promise that he is for believers continually changing and improving us, progressively reforming our minds to be more and more like the mind of Christ. He does this by the washing of his word. For example, as Pastor Harley has spent the last year, uh, year plus, teaching us through the book of Romans, God has revealed us more clearly many things about who we are, about who he is, the nature of sin, and his plan of salvation. So as you come to study John today, the words in the book are the same, but you are not the same. And our goal in reading any familiar text 
must be to lay aside our old presuppositions and our traditions and hear God speak these old, unchanging truths for the first time with the new ears that he has given us. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 1. Book of John, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one today. We're going to be going all the way through. So uh, our ushers have some extra Bibles. If you don't have one with you, just lift up your hand and uh, Tanner will be happy to fix you up, get you a Bible. And there's also some uh, in the chairs in front of you if you want to use those. So I'd like to just uh, start by introducing the author to you. The author, of course, of this book is John. He's the son of Zebedee. He's one of the apostles, one of the twelve, one of, th one of the three with Peter and James, the inner circle of God's apostles. He's, um, he's one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. In fact, he is the disciple Jesus loved. John was an eyewitness who heard what Christ taught. He watched how Christ lived, and he saw him live a sinless life. He saw him die on the cross, and John witnessed his resurrection. After his resurrection, he ate with Christ. He heard him teach more after the resurrection, and John saw Christ's transfiguration when he was taken up to heaven. These things John reports to us in this book as fact, as an eyewitness. In 1 John, uh, verses 1 and 2, it says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, that we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. My point here, folks, is there is no one on earth with more authority to speak about who Christ was than the Apostle John. This book was written between the, the dates 85 and 95, is our best estimation. We know this because John makes reference to the destruction of the Jewish temple, the Jerusalem temple, and we know from history in the Bible and also sources outside the Bible that that happened in 70 AD. John also refers to Paul's martyrdom when Paul was killed. So uh, that, that tells us that he couldn't have written the book before that, before those dates. So after 70 AD and of course before Paul died. So Paul's books of the Bible, I'm sorry, did I slip over to Paul? Yes. Yes, so uh, Paul died before John wrote this book. And so Paul's books of the Bible, all of them, a full third of the New Testament, had already been written when John wrote this book. And they were widely distributed and known to the Christian churches. In my study, I came across an interesting quote from Clement, one of the earliest of the church historians. Clement wrote, Last of all, John... Perceiving that the external facts had been made plain, composed a spiritual gospel. So from that we can see that John's gospel was the last one written of the other books of the Bible. And I'll explain in a moment why that's important. And there's also, you can hear from Clement's words, that he was satisfied that Luke, Matthew, and Mark 
had written accurately about the facts of Christ's, um, Christ's life, death, resurrection, transfiguration, those things had been written accurately. So Paul was satisfied with that, so he kind of moves on to more uh, material that haven't been covered by the other Gospels. You see the importance of that? Uh, the reason this date is important, the reason I'm spending time is here, is because this, uh, the book of John was written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. If John had written what was false, it would have been rejected by the church. So we can be confident that what John wrote was accurate and true. Consider it this way, uh, to illustrate this, if a historian today, 50 years after the death of uh, JFK, John Kennedy. If a historian today wrote that John F. Kennedy was a woman and that he was a conservative politician, um, it would be clear and it would be known to everyone that this man's book was unreliable and his work would be discarded. John's gospel was recognized as true by the other eyewitnesses and accepted as authoritative addition to the Bible. And that's why it became part of the Bible. Do you see how that process works? John's book was written after the other Gospels. Therefore, it could be compared to the earlier Gospels and all of Paul's writings. The results of this canon review, that means reading it uh, by checking it out against the rest of the Bible, was that the early Christians and Christians ever since that time have judged this book consistent with the content of the rest of the Bible and reliable. So by way of introduction, we can be confident of uh, John's writings. To help us really understand this process of, uh, of canon review, that means comparing books that were uh, uh, suggested to be included in the Bible, comparing it with the other things that had already been written and taught by the apostles, follow me down a little rabbit trail and I'll show you something. Uh, hopefully it'll illustrate this point. Compare and contrast John's book as we read it to the false Gnostic Gospels. Here's one, the Gospel of Thomas. It was written in the 2nd century, after the deaths of all the apostles, and certainly after the death of Thomas. So it would be suspect right from the start. And the content of the Gospel of Thomas, which isn't included in our Bibles, was inconsistent with the other gospel accounts, and it was rejected by the church and has been rejected by Christians ever since. And it was rejected from inclusion in the Bible. But don't take my word for that. Listen to an excerpt from the Gospel of Thomas and test it for yourself. You are going to practice what the church has practiced all through history. Here's a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Quote, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. Jesus said, this is Thomas saying that Jesus said this, I shall lead her, that I make her male, in order that she also may become a living spirit, like you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What do you think? Does that sound like the rest of the Bible? Should it have been included in the Bible? No, obviously not. And most scholars agree that uh, the Gospel of Thomas, believe it or not, is the most credible of the Gnostic Gospels. 
It is as obviously false as the Gospel of John is obviously true. So enough of that. We'll get back to, the, uh, to our book. Uh, the audience for the book of John is important for us to discover before we start reading it. And I suggest to you that the audience of John is to all people at all times. We know this because John is writing after Pentecost when the gospel had been expanded from the Jews only to all nations. We know this because John is following Christ's commission to preach the gospel to every nation. We can see this in the text as John translates Aramaic quotes into the language of the Greek Gentiles. Think of it this way. If you were telling uh, an American of what you did this weekend, you might say, I put on my toque. That's a knitted cap. You see how you have to translate from a Canadian, what every Canadian knows, to an American doesn't know what a toque is. Uh, so you have to translate for them. That's clear that uh, John's audience was not just the Jews. He was translating it for the Gentiles. Think of it another way. If you said, I drove 100 all the way to Regina, you'd have to explain to Americans that you aren't a law breaker, that 100 is 100 kilometers per hour. See how that works? So we can see that John was speaking to not just the Jews in his book because he translated things that every Jew would know he translated them for the Gentiles. Also, John explains Jewish traditions, proving he was not only speaking to the Jews. Clearly, John is writing to Jews and non-Jews. John, if his audience had been only the Jewish community of that time, would not have to explain Jewish customs in his letter, just as you do not have to explain to other Canadians why we have a great cup parade. See how that works? Understanding the audience is important so that we do not incorrectly take the teaching in the Bible that is intended for a specific group of people for a specific time and circumstance and apply it to another group of people for whom it wasn't intended. This is a common error and it gives rise to many of the false teachings of our time, such as the word of faith heresy, the health and wealth prosperity gospel, the Seventh-day Adventist errors, and the errors of the Hebrew Roots Movement. So we're going to avoid that error by settling that the audience is uh, for all peoples at all times in John, and therefore we can feel comfortable applying what John teaches to us today. The theme of John's Gospel is that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the Son of God. By believing in Jesus, people can have eternal life. Hear verse 20, 30 and 31 from the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the theme of John. In conclusion, the Gospel of John is written by a credible author. His message has been tested and authenticated by the church. Its theme is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. By believing in Jesus, people can have eternal life. It is unmistakable, and it is for you and I today. So that is the theme. So now that we know those things, it is our real expectation, based on God's promise, based on his faithful character, 
based on his absolute ability due to his infinite power that as we study through John together, God will accomplish his will. He will reveal himself to us more clearly with the result that those of you who believe in him will, glow, will grow in the blessed assurance that you believe in the only true and saving God. On the other hand, if you are an unbeliever, you will have the opportunity to recognize and be called to repentance, that is to change your mind from your false belief and to find reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This is a twofold purpose of the book of John. So with that worthy goal in mind, let's turn to John 1.1. 1, 1. I'm just going to read the first two verses in their entirety, entirety then we'll take a few minutes to break them down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I'm just going to pause there. As we look at the first words of John 1.1, it says, In the beginning. Have you noticed that... Uh, this is the same way the Bible starts. Same as the first book of the Bible starts, in the beginning. And we can also know that this is actually talking about the same point in history. It's identified in verse 3, which we'll come to in a few minutes as, before creation in eternity, before the beginning of time. So that's what in the beginning means. Before creation in eternity, before the beginning of time. This is the same uh, this is the same in the beginning as referenced in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next phrase we have is, was the word. In the beginning was the word. I want to draw your attention to the word, word. The word here uh, can be understood as the divine self-expression. And we will learn very soon that the word is Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, is him coming to earth. He is the divine self-expression, the word himself. The word uh, in the Greek language that this book was written in is logos. Logos is also the root of the word logic. And uh, we're going to see as we go through the book of uh, John that this, is, that this name has these meanings, that logic is order, God-given order that he has given to the world. And that's revealed in him as creator. We're going to see that right away in verse 3. Also, the order has an element in the, uh, in the Greek of harmony. And that's expressed in Christ's relation to the Trinity. To the Holy Spirit and God, their harmony together in, uh, in all aspects. So that's what we can understand about the word. This word is in verse 14, identified as God in the flesh, incarnate, the only Son of the Father. And in verse 17, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is synonymous with the Word. 
It is one of his titles, as is the only Son of God. So it is legitimate as we read this, and I would argue imperative, that you can understand John 1, 1 saying, in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God, and that Jesus is outside of time, and his soul is co-eternal with God. Verse 1 and verse 14 are recognized as literary brackets that are intended to bring attention to the material that's in between them. And in that material, verse 1 introduces the word, verse 14 identifies the word and announces his arrival on earth. And the passages in between 1 and 14 define Christ for us. The next phrase is, and the word was with God. Jesus was in the presence of God, with him. He coexisted with God in eternity, before the beginning of time. These are clearly, and here they are clearly identified as two separate persons coexisting. The preposition with, with God, here expresses not only coexistence, but listen to this, but a union between the two. They are with each other. A unity of mind, a unity of character, a unity of will, a unity of heart, of the essence. The with the with also implies a joyful fellowship between God the Father and Christ the Eternal Son. And yet, they are separate personalities. We go to the next part of the phrase. It says, and the word was God. I say to you folks that there is no more clear, no more unambiguous way to communicate the truth. Jesus was God. Beloved, this is most definitely not the Christ that the Jehovah's Witness teach us, who is not God. This is not the Jesus that our Muslim neighbors believe in, who is a created being, and not God, but only a man, one of the prophets. This is not the Jesus that our Mormon friends trust, who they believe is a created being. My friends, from this first sentence alone, we receive not only the ability to know Christ, who he is, but also to identify false Christ, and also to identify our friends and neighbors who call themselves Christian or believers in Jesus, but who have placed their faith in false Christ. We have in John 1.1 not only a rock-solid apologetic to defend our faith, but this, brothers and sisters, must be our call to recognize the lost and proclaim the true Christ to them and his call to repentance, and faith in him alone for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The next phrase of 1 John is, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here again, we have an echo of the reference to Genesis 1, and an example of the progressive revelation of Scripture. Here, for the first time, the Creator and God of Genesis 1 is identified as Jesus Christ. The author states here, first positively, all things were made through Him, and then as a negative exclusion, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Many commentators believe this is an intentional wording that was designed 
to refute the false teaching that Christ was a created being that was around at the time John was written. And it still serves in that capacity today to help us separate him from the false Christ that are presented to us in our world. This season, the church remembers and celebrates the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, his coming to earth. And I want to take this opportunity to proclaim the gospel, the good news, which includes not only the announcement of his coming, but the reason he came. Our passage today reminds us that God is the creator of all things, and that means he is our creator, your creator, and mine. His word reveals to us that we are created in his image, and our purpose is to bring him glory. But we remember that the word, remember, God revealing himself, his self-expression, the word in the book of Romans reveals that all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. You see, this is why sin is so serious. Being created in his image, we were, we were intended to display his perfect likeness to all creation. But we have fallen short of his standard of perfection. When you and I have lied, even little lies in our eyes, the white lies, the exaggerations, the stretching of the truth, the substituting of half-truth for truths, we as image bearers of God proclaim God to be a liar, but he is not. God is the way. He is the truth and the life. When we even as much as look with lust at anyone but our spouse, Matthew 5 teaches us that God sees us as adulterers. We proclaim his image bearers. We proclaim to the world as his image bearers that he is unfaithful. Is God unfaithful? Romans 3, 4 declares, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. When we break the tenth commandment, when we covet and complain, we proclaim to the world that God is greedy, that he has cheated us. The bottom line is, we have not loved our Lord, our God, with all our hearts, all our souls and our minds, as we've been commanded. We have borne false witness to the world of his character. You see, the world tells us that Christ is coming again, this time to judge sin, and that each of us will stand before him to give an account of our lives, and we are guilty by his perfect standard. By his standard, we are liars, we are murderers, we are adulterers, covetous, unfaithful, and we are false witnesses. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed for each of us once to live, and then we stand before God in judgment. If we were to stand before God alone, we are guilty and deserving of eternal punishment. But the gospel of Christ does not leave us there. The word, God himself, revealing himself in Romans 6, tells us that the wages of sin are death, but... The gift of God is eternal life. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to die the death that I deserve for my sins, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, so that God might punish my sin in Christ and forgive it in me. He 
You see, God is not a sad, weak God that strikes out vengefully for having his feelings hurt. He is a perfect and powerful king, the creator and rightful ruler who is worthy of perfect worship and allegiance, a king who would be justified in punishing all treasonous rebels. But he is a merciful king, infinitely merciful, who sent his son as an emissary to announce amnesty, forgiveness, and repatriation to every rebel who would turn from his rebellion and follow him. The only saving response to this good news is repentance and belief. You must repent of your sins and recognize Christ as the rightful ruler of your life and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation to God. Then he rose. Christ rose from the dead, demonstrating that his sacrifice had been sufficient. The wrath of God was satisfied. The penalty of death had been removed for all who would believe in him. It is true that the reality of our sin is a hard message to receive. But I remind you what the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians. He said this, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, as we've started the book of John, I suggest that we have a context to truly celebrate Christmas and to understand our favorite verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Merry Christmas. Um, I'm just going to invite you to join in worship as uh, our musicians lead us. And following that, I want to make sure that especially our guests, but everyone, feel welcome to join us for our fellowship meal that we celebrate every week. If you didn't know that was happening, we've got lots of food for you, and we would love it if you can stay. God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas.